a reading from the Revelation uh, <clears throat> to John. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is it to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. But now Mary stood weeping outside the tomb as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Assuming him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think about your word this morning, particularly this part of Revelation, that you would open our hearts, that we would behold Jesus who loves us, and that we would, um, with open hands, uh, receive your hand toward us. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, we're studying Revelation this fall, and I continue to get a few comments here and there. And someone this week told me, in fact, I... I always have thought of Revelation as that scary book at the end of the Bible, you know, and, and 
and there's some weird things in there, right? And so there are a lot of impressions. There are a lot of false impressions. We have all kinds of misunderstanding about this particular book. And one of the things we tried to say last week is, you know, this is a book, the last book of the, new, of, of the Christian scripture, right, uh, in which the Lord sets us up for our life in the world now. Now think back to who those first readers would have been, right? These would have been second and you know, maybe some third generation followers of Jesus beginning to sort of struggle with what does it mean for us to continue to believe, to continue to hold on to a life of faith. And that was challenging for them in particular because, because they, they lived with, a, with an expectation that Jesus was going to return soon and all would be well, like now. But the problem was it wasn't. It wasn't that way at all. In fact, they were waiting. They were awaiting community of God, and they were awaiting in a suffering community of God because they lived in a world in which the kind of allegiance that Jesus asked of his people, right, which is, a, if you want to put it in the language of marriage, it's, it's monogamy. If you want to think about it in sort of language we're often typical, typically would use, we'd say, you know, there's an exclusivity to the relationship that Jesus, you know, when he defines his relationship with you, right? It's exclusive. He wants us to be, he wants to be the beginning, the starting place for the way you and I engage life. And the moment a, a person, the moment a community begins to take that seriously, what does it do? It puts you at odds with other people in your community. And this was certainly true for persons of the first century. Now, tremendous differences, yes, between our world and that world. But these aren't those differences. We wait and we suffer. We continue to take next steps with Jesus. We continue to think about and wrestle with our own struggle to let him be sort of the authoritative core of our very human lives, right? We, I struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? Yes, we all struggle with that. And so Revelation is really a book, this last book of scripture that is written for people just like us who are struggling to know, you know, what does it look like for me today in the context of the life that I just came through this past week to really take seriously that Jesus is Lord? How do I hold on to that while I wait? How do I hold on to that while I suffer? How do I hold on to that in the midst of joys that sometimes, you know, when things are going well in our lives, we become distracted and we sort of, sort of falsely imagine that we're there by our own our own sense of achievement, right, rather than gift and grace. So what does it mean to take him seriously in the midst of life? And Revelation is a book that sets us up to begin to process that and think about it and take those next steps of faith. Now today we come to this rich description that John gives us of Jesus himself. And it's interesting that the very first thing, before we get into all of, all of the rest of this just tremendously um, uh, complicated book in some respects, we're given this, this picture of Jesus. And we're given this invitation to, to sort of process our life with him first before anything else is going on. So here, John's description of Jesus, right? This last word in the Bible on the person of Christ. So remember we said last week at the very front end of this book, um, John is worshiping on the Lord's Day, perhaps a Sunday, and he is caught up in a spiritual space into this, this space of a vision. And today as we begin our text, John says, I turn to see whose voice was speaking to me, right? You would do the same. 
If you heard this sort of voice that was sort of drawing you up into the space of vision, you would turn to see who is this voice? Who is the one speaking? And so the rest of our passage, for the most part, begins to unfold this poetic and symbolic mosaic of the person of Jesus. And we're meant to sort of be captured by that and have our own imaginations stirred as Jesus is revealing himself to John. And not just himself, but he's telling us something about the churches as well. And something about the presence of the church in the space of heaven, his realm itself. So let's think about these things. But before we do that, let me ask you this. If you want to depict, or if we want to depict a political leader, if I want to describe political leaders in our day and age, how do you do that? How do you go about doing that? Now, we're most familiar, perhaps, with like political satire, political cartooning, right? Or maybe you're a fan of all of the fan fantastic right, Saturday Night Live sketches about political leaders that reach way back into our past, right? And what do you do in those spaces, right? Almost always in these spaces of satire, we are jabbing <laughs> at the authority of our leaders, right? We're trying to bring them down to earth. We're trying to cast them in a way that, uh, that in sometimes it discredits their actual authority, right? Uh, but what do you do in a space of political satire? You take some feature and you blow it up. You exaggerate it, right? Uh, President Obama's ears, right? You, you, you pick something and you just... Blow it up so that everybody sees the picture and they know who you're talking about. Uh, you know, Trump's toupee or his hair. I don't know what it is, but his hair, his pouty lips. And, you know, we, you know, we just pick things, right? Or you, you know, skip over into the world of Saturday Night Live. I remember, you know, the, the funniest ones were like of George Bush, right? Nuclear. And you sort of, what do you do? You're layering. In, you're layering this sort of real things, you're just, but you're blowing them up in hyperbole. And you're making them an expression of the whole so that when you see it, you know exactly who's being talked to and you know who's being brought down to the ground. But here's the question that I think we face. How do you depict greatness that does not invoke a, sat a satirical jab? So what if you saw a political leader that was just so grand and so beautiful and so perfect in leadership. How would you depict that one, that person? And you have something of what, what John is trying to do as he puts this mosaic, this collage of, uh, you know, this collage of metaphor or, or symbol around his description of Jesus. Not someone that you're understanding as a poser, not someone that lives with some delusion of their greatness or a corrupted sense of their own power or a manipulative practice of some pattern of love, but absolute goodness, absolute beauty, absolute truth, absolute power. How do you draw that picture, right? And I would love to see one of you artists draw that picture what would it look like visually? What would it look like descriptively as you sort of put words to someone like that? How would you describe that one? John beholds Jesus in this transcendent space of heaven itself. 
and he begins to layer this story of who he is. And he does that by keying to things that he's read or heard in places of Scripture uh, throughout his reading or understanding of the scriptural words that are used to describe some of the great vision moments about God's revelation. And he does that without ever quoting a verse specifically. But he's echoing sort of descriptive patterns inside of Scripture itself. And one of the brilliant ones or one of the dominant ones that you see in this particular space, it comes out of Daniel where Daniel experiences and describes his own encounter with one like the Son of Man. Now first, these lampstands. Lampstands, which are probably not as we might be inclined to imagine them as a candlestick, but rather something more like a menorah that is, uh, you know, connected branches, right? Uh, so these seven connected branches, and almost immediately when you put that in the frame of reference, where are you? You're in a temple space. You're in a sacred space. And so John's readers would be imagining as he's talking about the lampstands, and then later at the end of a passage as he connects the lampstands to the, to the symbolic reference point to the churches that he's writing to, what do you begin to understand about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It happens inside the body of Christ. N.T. Wright says there are no only children of God. Our life of faith individually, as important as it is, it is always situated in community. It's situated in terms of our relatedness to Jesus, but it's also situated in terms of our relatedness to God's people, right? In time and throughout time. And so almost immediately, what, what John is sort of telling us about this sacred space that he's in, this temple space, this space where heaven and earth connect, he is recognizing the presence of the church in that space as a connected unity, and so not just talking about a few specific churches, but really the church throughout time, everywhere, and in all places. This vision is beginning to call us away from whatever tendency we have in terms of our isolation from one another, not just from God, but from one another, that the ordinary way of a follower of Jesus is to be part of the community of his followers. We know that when Jesus, he said what? That when two or three are gathered in my midst, there I am. And here he is in the midst of these lampstands. I want to meet God. Where do I do that? You're in a really good space this morning. The gathered community of God's people is a sacred space in which Jesus says, I'm in your midst or rather, perhaps, better even, we are drawn into his midst as we gather together in his name. I love the quote, right, that Annie Dillard, that's from Annie Dillard, uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk, that is at the very front of our bulletin this morning, right, because it just tells you, it shakes us up a little bit, that it's so easy for us to have the habitual pattern of sort of gathering on a Sunday, coming uh, to, to, to gather for worship, and our expectations are just so low. John is caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and he begins to behold this amazing picture of Jesus, but not just Jesus, of the church as well. The next thing John does is he takes us to this title of Jesus. I saw one like the Son of Man. As I said a few moments ago, this comes likely out of the book of Daniel, but it's also a title that Jesus referenced to himself and that the, that the gospel writers reference of G, toward Jesus over and over again, I think some 80 times in the gospels. It's a pretty important title. 
If you step back into the book of Daniel, one of the things you recognize about that particular title is it's a way of sort of linking humanity and divinity in a sense. That, In other words, Daniel had this, this image in the midst of his world that God would so come into our world, right, in this human form, this divine space, but he would come as a ruler, an absolute king who would rule forever and put the world to right. Who wouldn't want a world of absolute justice and goodness and truth that would begin at God's initiative and continue on forever and ever and ever. Jesus used that title to articulate his own identity as Messiah. He is the king that would last forever. He is the king that has come from heaven to put our world to right so that it begins to flourish in a way that is beyond our imaginations. But the thing about Jesus' kingship that's just so remarkable, right? If you remember thinking back to the gospel stories of Jesus, the thing that's so absolutely remarkable is that Jesus takes this notion of leadership, political leadership, and he blows it up because he's a king like no other. He's one that can sit very comfortably with the title, the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, this king that will live forever, the one who inherits David's throne. But how does he inhabit that title? If you read his story, and you read how the Apostle Paul narrates that story in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus inhabits that title as a servant, as a slave. He takes on a role of one who gives and orders his power for the sake of others over and over and over again. True greatness, in other words, is not narcissistic. It's humble service. It's power that is given away and not hoarded to oneself. And this is the very first thing that John begins to see and remember and recall about Jesus himself. So think about yourself for just a moment, right? You're living in the first century. You're waiting longer than you expected to wait. You know that there's political threat. You know that there's religious threat because you're approaching Jesus as, as the exclusive lover of your soul. And there's a pressure on you. And sometimes there's suffering that comes to you because you've so identified with who Jesus is in that loving, particular, monogamous kind of way. What does hearing this depiction of Jesus stir in you? Maybe it's just enough to sort of get you to take that next step of faith. Maybe it's an imagination that you're remembering. He, he is there. He is risen. He is great. He is in his glory. The story is true. And you just keep taking a next face of faith. And then John says he's wearing this robe with a golden sash across his check. So remember, this is a, a collage, right? It's a mosaic of metaphor and symbol and image that's sort of colliding together like, like some great mural or some great mosaic in which you have this impression of who Jesus is. So what's coming together in this sort of depiction of Jesus wearing a robe or, or a golden sash? Well, look, if you are a reader of the Bible or you're one who was, you're regularly in synagogue or you're in a space of worship and you've heard the Old Testament read over and over again and you've seen, right, scripture in, in these, you know, read in these spaces of worship, what is that picture? Jesus is dressed like a priest. 
He's dressed like a priest. He's wearing the clothes of a priest so that everyone would recognize who he is and what's going on. This is sort of tagging on to this Old Testament practice of the priesthood. You know that so Jesus is wearing the uniform of a priest, and so the people that are listening to John describe Jesus, they would sort of begin to cue in and think, oh, he's a king, but he's a priest. Why a priest? What do priests do? Priests serve as a kind of footbridge between the people of God and God's own self. In other words, priests mediate this space between God and human beings. That's what priests did in the Old Testament. It's what we do now. Priests are mediatorial, right? And they're, they're sort of connecting us. Now, why is that so important? Because we get stuck. <laughs> do you ever feel stuck in your life with God? Do you ever feel like I, I can't go forward. There are two different ways we get stuck, right? They're, they're like polar opposites. One is we get stuck in this space of pride. And in the space of pride, what's my posture? It's like, I don't, I, I, I'll do this myself. In fact, I can do this myself. I'm a very gifted person. I can do whatever it is that's handed myself. I can figure life out on my own. And I will figure life out on my own. So there's, in other words, there's a, there's a hubris about human beings, right? Um, in which uh, we, we just sort of stiff-arm God, right? If you were in Steve's class this morning, right, we were doing the class, by the way, on, on what it, life in the spirit, right? Paul's theology of life in the spirit. And you know that one of the very big problems about humanity in, in, that's told throughout scripture is that we just won't honor God. We just won't obey God. So pride is that space of just saying, I don't need God. But I get stuck not just in that space of pride, I get stuck in spaces of being a victim, right? Either I'm a victim to my own failed life, my failed attempts, and I just give up and I feel sorry for myself and I sort of dissolve into spaces of self-pity or, and sometimes it's not just because I failed or done some, there's some inadequacy that I recognize in myself, but it's an inadequacy that I recognize in the people around me that don't love me the way I would like to be loved. And we feel stuck. And they're just polar opposites, but they're so connected because they both, what, require mediation. So on the one hand, what does a priest do with someone who's proudful, who's sort of stuck in that space of pride? They might, in a conversation with you, sort of begin to push on you, right? They'll, they'll sort, of, sort of challenge your pride, right? They'll try to pull you away from pride. Why? Because they want you to feel bad about yourself? No. Because they want to invite you over the footbridge. They want your life to connect with God. And if you're in this other space where you feel like a victim, either because of your own personal failure or the failure of people around you, what do priests do? They lift you up. And they call you into another space of, of human agency, of your own agency, that you would live, right, by invitation, right? That's what priests do, and that's why we need priests, because fear and shame and guilt and pride stop us in our ascent to God. We get stuck. A priest invites us further into a place of greater glory than we can ever get to on our own. And so right at the outset, John is reminding us of who Jesus is. He's your priest. He connects your life to God. He challenges you in your stubbornness. He invites you in your weakness. 
His hair is like wool. Maybe that indicates wisdom. Old age. This week, Chris said, I didn't realize Gandalf was in the, Old Test- in the New Testament. His eyes, right, they're like a flame illuminating the illuminating, piercing stare of Jesus. Sit with that image for a moment. Have you ever tried to peer into someone's eyes? It is so hard because as we peer, we know what? They're peering back. So right here at the outset, John says his eyes are like a piercing flame. He sees you. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. When God looks on us, he sees us all the way down and all the way through. And there's something so absolutely beautiful and freeing about that, to be seen, to be fully known, a place where you don't have to posture. That's how God looks on you. That's how Jesus looks on you. That's what John is describing when he puts flames in his eyes. His voice, like many waters, may be an echo of Ezekiel chapter 1. His voice, like many waters... Have you ever gone on a long hike to see a waterfall? <laughs> you know, and it's not like a lame waterfall. It's an exciting one. And you've worked so hard to get to the end of that hike, and there you are before the falling waters. What do you do? You just take it in visually and more the roar of it you take in, right? You, you hear the many waters. And what does it do? It's awe-inspiring, right? It's a, it's a moment where you're just like, wow. Wow. That's how John is describing this moment of hearing this voice of Jesus. His mouth, a double-edged sword, maybe his words of wisdom, they challenge the hubris, they call it down, they lift up the humble. In other words, his word is precise. It's just what you need. His face, I love this one. Sunshine in full force. Sunshine in full force. On a day like today, you love those moments when the clouds break and the sun shines out and you just want to feel it. Have you ever been in that space where you just want to feel the sunshine on your body? Because it feels what? So life-giving. That's how John is describing the face of Jesus. Maybe calling us to remember that great benediction. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Imagine you're living as one who waits, you're living in spaces of suffering, or you're living in a space of joy in any situation, whatever your situation of life, that description of Jesus, what does it tell you? That your joy is keyed ultimately to the joy that he has, so you don't settle for less than him. If you're in a space of sorrow or lamentation or grief, it recognizes, what do you recognize? He sees you all the way down and he lifts you. He's your priest. 
John adds this bit about the stars in his hand. And this is a curious, weird space because it does seem like he's pulling on these images out of his world, not so much out of the Bible, but out of the world itself, the world of pagan astrology, right? That he's sort of taking these notions and he puts them in the right hand of Jesus and he says, hey, these are the angels that are connected to these churches. Wow. What is he getting at? You see, not only... Is your life before Jesus and his life is before you, but the heavenly hosts of heaven are for you as well. The world of God, right? The heavenly world of God in which there are these angelic beings who are not like you, but they're not God either. That they are, they are leveraged toward you for your good. There's some connection that we just don't see that's real, guiding us to our final destination with him. Now, let's finish up this way. Remember last week, we said that the purpose of Scripture, it's never that we would sort of, you know, get alone in a room with our Bible and just read it for reading's sake. But it is always to lead us into a place of communion. In fact, we could even say that Scripture's point is to lead us to the table that we're coming to in just a moment where we absolutely fellowship with God in his presence as family. Scripture is profoundly personal. Profoundly personal. And the invitation when we hear, when we encounter, is to do what? Is to enter into what is there. It's not just to say, hey, I got that. I know that. It's factual data in my brain. But it's far more experiential than that. It's far more experiential that you and I would live as sons and daughters of God in his presence. So notice what John does here in this next little phase. He tells us his testimony. He tells us a part of his own Christian story. And it's the story that's unfolding in this moment of the vision, right? And so what does he say? He said, just listen, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, as he sees and as he is really seen by God, it feels like it sucks the life out of him. He falls back. He falls down. And I think this is what it's like when you let your guard down and you're really seen. When we're really in that transparent space, that vulnerable space with God, and we recognize that he sees us through and through, that there's just, there's no room for pretense, right? All the posturing that I want to conjure up for myself before God, it doesn't matter why. No secrets are hidden from him. He sees you. He sees through your motives. I can't even see through my own motives. You can't even see through your own motives. But the piercing gaze of Jesus sees us all the way through and all the way down. There's no longer self-defense in his presence. There's no longer room for posturing. And if there is, and if that's where we find our minds wandering in those spaces, it's because we still believe that we possess the power to cover ourselves. I can do it on my own, or I'm just a victim. Those polar experiences. And John's response is one that falls down as though dead. And what's interesting is it fits the response of almost everyone in Scripture that seems to ever experience God like that. 
It completely undoes them. Think of that great, more famous passage like Isaiah's experience in, in chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me. What? Why? Because he feels like I'm an imposter. Who, who am I to have God's words on my tongue? Because my lips are unclean. They don't fit me. Ezekiel chapter 1, 28. As Ezekiel has his own vision. When I saw it, he says, I fell on my face. Daniel, since this draws heavily from Daniel, as Daniel has his, his visionary experience in chapter 10, he says this, he says, my strength left me and my complexion drew, grew deathly pale and I retained no strength. Have you ever been like exhausted because God saw you? That's the picture that we have. Jump over into the New Testament, it continues on, right? We remember those moments where Peter is walking on water, right? It's that moment, like there are these little moments where the disciples are sort of going along with Jesus and they think they get Jesus and they're really excited about Jesus' notions of the kingdom and the healing and all the good things around them. And then there are these moments of transcendence that just pierce their lives. And Peter says, in those moments, depart from me. I'm a sinner. I'm not like you. In other words, when we see that we are seen by God, we begin to recognize that we're just not God. And we're okay with that. It's a kind of death. Whenever human beings wake up to the reality that God sees them, they fall down, they doubt themselves, they cling, maybe even a little bit like Mary in the garden when she sees the resurrected Jesus. One of the ways that you and I will know that our experiences are of the one true God who beholds us is that we begin to release all of the ways that you and I try to make sense of ourselves without him. We let go of all the posturing and we just stop. And as important as it would be to understand that, and that is such a critical piece of what we must understand, but the good news, the really, really good news is not just that you get to stop posturing, but that he extends his hand to you. Because that's how John's story continues, right? It's the best part of this story, I think. He, he placed his hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. He placed his hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and, I, and see, I am alive. In fact, I'm alive forever and ever. And not only that, I hold the keys to death in this symbolic space of the dead Hades. I hold that in my hand. Who is Jesus as John sees him and experiences him? He's a priest. He's the bridge. He dispels us of all the false notions of who we are, and he brings us into a full notion of who he, who he is. He is your priest who loves you, who puts his hand on your shoulder, and he says, rise. That's the picture that John is calling the readers of Revelation to enter into. Yes, his story is unique. Yes, his story is to write this for the rest of the church, but he writes that story for you and for me so that we would have the gift of being ourselves. 
of being seen all the way through, known fully by God, by his own self in such a way that all of our false props fall away. And we recognize, though, in the falling away of those props that we are not consigned to death. But we rise at his hand into life, that we would live in this world now in a way that looks like a son and a daughter of God, a community of sons and daughters of God. That's his invitation to us in this word of scripture and for this week as we walk with him through this great text. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would...